take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. When people think of you, when people speak of you, what do they think and speak of? What is your reputation? When they think of you, do they think of you with joy or with frustration or, or bitterness or even anger? Last week, we, last week, we laid the groundwork for this book and we examined the reality that Paul is about to die. He's in prison for the final time at the order of the emperor Nero, and he is not expecting to be released this time. He is expecting to be martyred for the faith. And so this book serves as the last words of Paul. But the question we ought to ask is, why would Paul send his last words to Timothy? When of everybody he could have sent them to, why to Timothy? There were so many people that traveled with Paul over the years. People like Barnabas and Luke and Titus. Yet he sent his final words to Timothy. Why? Well, he did this because of his relationship with Timothy and the fact that his relationship was fostered through the godliness that Timothy projected. Timothy was a picture of Christlikeness. And as a result, when Paul thought of Timothy, he did so with joy. He longed to be with him. He longed to see him again. He longed to be encouraged once again with Timothy and to encourage Timothy to continue in that which made him a picture of Christ's likeness. And so today I want to look at this text and look at Timothy himself and ask, what is it about him that we ought to emulate in order to picture and project Christ's likeness? Ourselves. Let's look at our text this morning, verses 3 through 7 of 2 Timothy 1. Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. As we examine this text, we must ask the question, what is it that made pic uh, Timothy a picture of Christlikeness? What about Timothy brought Paul such joy? These must then be the same things that we, we must strive for in our lives. These need to be the same things that we need to emulate and project in our lives. And as we examine this passage, we'll discover that there are two actions that we must take if we are to be pictures of Christlikeness. If our desire in our Christian walk is to be more than simply something we do on Sundays, we need to pursue these two goals. The first goal, the first action is that we must live with sincere faith. 
We must live with sincere faith. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So verse 5 there informs us that Timothy had a sincere faith, a genuine faith, a faith without hypocrisy. That word sincere there is actually a compound word that composes of a negative prefix with the Greek word hypocrito. I recognize that we get our English word hypocrite from it. And so what he's saying is that Timothy's faith was the opposite of hypocritical. It was completely genuine without deceit or pretense. This is the goal of our walk. Paul says in second Corinthians one for our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. But we have to ask the question, how does Paul know that Timothy possessed this sincere faith? How did Paul know that it wasn't hypocritical? Well, we see this in three ways in these verses. We're actually going to work backwards through these verses to see this. First, in verse 5. We see that it is a sincere faith because it was evident to others. It was evident to others. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. What's interesting is that in this phrase, there's a word that we miss in our English translation. And it's a word that actually means evident. A faith evident that dwelt first in your grandmother And your Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure now dwells in you. Paul says that this faith was evident in his mother and grandmother. We saw that in Acts 16, where we are first introduced to Timothy and to his family. Paul comes into Derbe and Lystra and a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father was a Greek. The picture is that his father was an unbeliever, but his mother was faithful and believed in Christ and had sincere faith. And that was right for every man to a great extent is the product of his inheritance, of his upbringing. Now, it's true that faith is not automatically passed down from parents to children. We all certainly know of people of faith whose children didn't follow them in the faith and were not faithful. But a child can be led to faith by his parents' teaching, example, and prayers. And this was certainly true of Timothy. And the fact that this faith was indeed passed on to Timothy was evident to others. That it was sincere. It means that others reminded him of Timothy's Faith, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And whether this was simply uh, others observing and thinking, it was through observing others and thinking, wow, they're really like Timothy in the way they are faithful. Or that this was through someone actually commending Timothy's faith to Paul's not evident. But it it really doesn't matter because either way, the point is the same. Timothy was a man of genuine, unhypocritical, sincere faith. 
Any short amount of time spent with Timothy or observing Timothy revealed that genuine faith. Further, Paul says, I am sure that this faith dwells in you. I'm confident, I'm convinced that it's there. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, Paul is thankful that he can remember Timothy as one who has an unwavering faith. He was not a hypocrite. He was not double-minded. He remained solid. He was marked by genuine trust in God. And, And this is important because we'll see at the end of the book that this was not true of others. Demas and others had deserted Paul now that he was facing legitimate persecution. But not Timothy. His faith remained solid. He didn't hide his faith in order to survive persecution, but stood with confidence before God. Now, the question is this. Can that be said of us? Is your faith sincere? Do you act with the same Christ-likeness everywhere or simply in church on Sunday? Do you separate your God stuff over here from the rest of life over here? Or are they one and the same? Do you seek to live out the word of God in every aspect of your life? When people think of you, do they think of your Christ likeness or do they think of your faults? His faith was evident to everyone around him. Secondly, though, this was evidenced by his love for others. Verse four, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. As Timothy, as Paul thought of Timothy, he was filled with an intense desire to be with him. He says, I I long to see you. That word long denotes a strong desire. It's really a word that Paul invents describing this great good desire. He longed for Timothy. Paul longed to be with him because Timothy was marked by love for others. He had sacrificed years of his life serving in Ephesus, attempting to bring that church back to health, all because he loved them. Further, he he had a strong love for Paul. Their last parting had been marked by tears. You know, our culture today demeans the idea of tears of men, right? It's seen as weak. It's seen as soft. Really, that's a mistake. We ought to be marked by intense love for one another. Timothy genuinely cared for other people. He wasn't gruff. He wasn't mean. He wasn't a vindictive person. He wasn't an angry man. He was not an unhappy man. Instead, he was a loving man. Well, man says Paul's own tender memories reflect the warmth of this large hearted pastor. Are you known for love for others or for your rough exterior? Are you known for your love for others or for being a person who is just upset with life? You know, sadly, too many Christians are known for their arrogance and their vindictiveness rather than their love. Sincere faith is marked by a love for others. 
In fact, John informs us, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 1 John 4, 20. Timothy was marked by a sincere faith. It was evident to others because he had a love for others. But because he had a love for others, we see third, that he was a blessing to others. Verse 3. When we have a sincere faith, it's evident to others because we love others and our love for others is evident by the fact that we're a blessing for others. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. He's talking about his working out of his religious duties. It's, it's this unbroken habit of life that he's doing, serving God. He says, as did my ancestors, his forebearers. It's an important phrase as we rabbit trail just a little bit because it's saying that Christianity was the continuation of Jewish worship. You see, Paul does not look back on his early life as a time of a lack of faithfulness to God, but rather one of ignorance of unbelief with regard to Jesus. He's stressing that Christianity is not a new religion. Rather, it's the fulfillment of God's working through history. Essentially, anyone who believes or what we believe now is what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Isaiah and all the pious ancestors also believe. There's a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. This is what he confessed in Acts 24. He said, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, Christianity, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and unjust. And Paul says he worships, he serves with a clear, unstained conscience. That's a significant statement. In light of the fact that Paul's chained as a criminal, about to die, his refusal to be ashamed despite his seemingly constant suffering, it echoes throughout the epistle. He says, I am not ashamed of this. I've served God with a clear conscience, and so I can stand even in chains, ready to die right with God. Whatever Paul did in serving God was always done with full commitment to God. And after careful examination of his life, he could say with absolute sincerity that he was living in holiness before the Lord. He wasn't perfect, but he was sure to take care of any known sin in his life. And he was walking with Christ. You know, when we worship God, we must have no ulterior motives. Our minds and our purpose must be unstained by sin. Paul says this of the deacons in 1 Timothy 3. He says they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. But all of this actually is not the point of the verse. The point of the verse, the main point, comes in the last phrase. I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Sitting in his gloomy dungeon and facing death, Paul is reminded of Timothy because Timothy was a blessing to Paul. What was Paul's prayer? He says, I I remember you constantly in my prayers. 
What was his prayer that he had for for Timothy? It was a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer of thanksgiving. One One way that Paul was able to endure the chains and walk boldly towards the face of death was because Timothy was an encouragement to him. You know, I've often heard there's two kinds of people in this world. The people you love to see come in and the people you love to see go out. Right? The people that energize a room when they enter and the people that energize a room when they exit. Some people are the kind that you love to see come in because they're a blessing to you. They live in sincere faith, and as a result, they encourage and uplift. They love others. Others you love to see go out because they're not sincere in their faith. They're angry with life. They complain. They whine. They walk in arrogance, and they suck you dry. So the question is, which person are you? Do you uplift or do you tear down. If we are to walk in Christ's likeness, we must be people of sincere faith. We must encourage and bless others when we're around them. As Hebrews directs us in Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We must be marked by love for others. And this comes as we revel in God's love. John 4 tells us in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love motivates our love for others. The more we consider and meditate on God's love, the more that love reaches out to others. And when we do this, our faith will be evident to everyone around us. So in order to be a picture of Christ's likeness, we must first walk in sincere faith. But as we walk in sincere faith, we ought to then fan into flame the gift of God. The second thing we must do is fan into flame the gift of God. Verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love. And self-control. This echoes what Paul has already told Timothy in his first letter. 1 Timothy 4.14 Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. There he told him not to neglect it. Here he tells him, fan it into flame. That means the idea of stirring up smoldering embers into a living flame to keep it white heat. It's like the campfire is going out, but rather than restarting it, you put the wood on it. You begin to blow on it to get that oxygen in there, to get it to catch fire and to burst forth in flame. It's the rekindling of dying flames. But it doesn't mean that Paul thought Timothy's faith was dying out. Rather, that he should fan into flame that special gift of God he received. In other words, he was to make full use of it. It's an appeal for a continual, vigorous use of his spiritual gifts. Timothy was already serving the church faithfully in Ephesus. He was, had been there for many years now. But in the face of Paul's impending death, Paul was encouraging Timothy that he was to continue in his faithful 
service. One man said the flame had not gone out, but it was burning slowly and had to be agitated to white heat. The time was serious. Paul was about to depart from the scene of history and Timothy must carry on where Paul was about to leave off. The church father commenting on this, Christostom, observed as a fire requires fuel, so grace requires our electricity that it may be ever fervent. See, every Christian worker engaged in however small a task must remember that God never commissions anyone to a task without imparting a special gift appropriate for it. God grants you the power to accomplish what he calls you to do. He gifts you to work in the church and we must fan into flames the gifts that God has given us. We must be willing to serve the church faithfully. Now, let's be honest. COVID has given us an excuse to become complacent about our service in the church. We've fallen into the habit of not valuing the local church. We've fallen into the trap of believing that it's okay if our service to the church falls off. But that's not the case. We need service now more than ever. It's time for again for everyone in this body to step up and again serve their God by serving their church. Now I am thankful you are here today. That was an act of service on your part. But it must not stop there. Now perhaps you think you can't do it. You don't have the time, you don't have the energy. Perhaps you think you can't do it because you don't have the power or the ability. To this, Paul responds with verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, God has given us a spirit. Now we have to ask the question. Does this word spirit here refer to the spirit, little spirit, ours, or the spirit, biggest spirit, the Holy Spirit? Well, I think as we exam- examine the verse, the answer is actually both. Because at salvation, our spirit is joined with God's spirit as he indwells us. So that God's spirit works in our spirit to accomplish his purposes. But not first the negative. He has not given us a spirit of fear. This spirit is not of fear. This word fear is the idea of timidity or lack of courage. It's actually only used here in the New Testament. It's the only time it's used here. Interestingly enough as well is the position of the word not. In the Greek New Testament, it is the very first word in this verse. And it signifies that in no way does God give us a spirit of cowardice. It is the complete opposite. One man comments, the power of the Holy Spirit within the servant of God has enabled many a naturally timid man to develop a boldness not his own, called in the name of God to fulfill a difficult ministry. See, God does not desire you to fear. Maybe you're afraid you can't serve in different ministries in the church. That's not the case. You see, if a person fears Satan's persecuting power, 
Or if a person fears for their physical health and well-being more or their comfort more than they trust God's ability and ever readiness to help, they've lost their view of God. That fearful spirit is not from God. The gospel is never advanced by fearful people. Gospel change never occurs in fearful people. Rather, God has given us a spirit of power. That word power is the word we get the English word dynamite from. It means incredible force or might. The Holy Spirit produces power in the life of the believer, a boldness and an ability to accomplish what God has assigned the believer to do. The power of the Holy Spirit within him has enabled many naturally timid people to develop a boldness to fulfill difficult ministry. God's power is available to you. God's ability is already working in you. We're reminded in Ephesians 3 that he works according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit. He continues on in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul confessed in Romans 15, verse 18 and 19, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. But this power is available to you. We're encouraged in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have not always as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, live out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul states here in Philippians 2, 12, that we are to work out, live out our salvation, that we as believers are to live it out. For Paul, obedience expressed an essential ingredient in Christian living. His responsibility was to live in light of his salvation and let the implications transform his life. If you are truly a believer, then you will desire to live like Christ. But for God and for gospel advance and growth in this church to happen, it has to begin in your life. You have to grow. Each one of you must see to it that God's purposes are accomplished in your life in this church. And Paul is stating that we are to act like Christians. And while human energy could never accomplish the work of God, God does not accomplish his purposes without it. You must work. And in living, it's this living out of salvation that the world discourages. That's what they hate. The path to obedience is dangerous. And so pleasure seekers look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for entertainment and feeling good, instantaneous enlightenment and emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take quick shortcuts, but they'll not be found with Pilgrims, children of God on the long, hard road, following the footsteps of Christ. But we're not alone on this. It seems hard. It seems arduous. At times, it seems 
impossible. But we're not on this road of our Christian life alone. No, God has given us the spirit of power. It echoes what Paul said there in Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The pull and the allure of sin, it's strong in our lives. If sin was not so pretty, we wouldn't follow after it. We wouldn't struggle with it. Satan rarely appears as that horned devil ready to trip us up. Rather, he appears as the angel of light. And we struggle with sin because we enjoy it. Yet at salvation and as we grow in our relationship with God, God actually implants in us through the Holy Spirit, a new desire toward God. Any desire to do right is from God. That's good news. Although we are to work out our salvation, God is the one who works in us, implanting in us the power to overcome sin and to serve him through a new motivation to please God. Have you ever met someone with little to no motivation to accomplish the task at hand? You know, perhaps it's that individual at work who just doesn't pull their weight. Where'd they go? Bathroom break number 94 today. Perhaps it's that kid on your child's sports team. who's more interested in chasing butterflies than playing the game. Maybe it's your own child yourself who just doesn't want to clean their room or accomplish their chores. Maybe it's you. Whatever it is, it's aggravating. But for many of us, that's the way we approach sin and our service in the church. We simply have determined this is who we are. This is our life. Sorry, just can't do it. We can't change. We're tired and we simply can't. We've tried. We can't. This verse gives new life to those people. As you draw near to God, he will implant within you power, ability to serve God. Yet not only does God implant in us the desire, he plants in us the power. He works in us to work out our salvation. God energizes us to have the energy to do what we are called to do. God doesn't just tell you to serve him. He gives you the ability, the gifts, and the power to do it. You know, sometimes we feel like God's asking the impossible. We need to recognize that God will also grant us the power to accomplish the impossible. God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign of all things, the all-powerful one, the all-wise one has promised that he will work in us to give us the power to serve him. So how is this work of God accomplished in your life? How do you get that power? How do you tap into it? You tap into it by a persistent, passionate relationship with God, by letting his spirit work in you. He's given us the abilities we need to serve him. You just have to spend time fostering that relationship, tapping into the Holy Spirit. No more I can't serve him like that. No more excuses. God has granted you the power to serve him. You just need 
to do it. You have the strength. So often as we approach people to serve, we hear over and over, I, I can't, I can't do that. Oh, I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. I don't have the intellect. I don't have the ability. I, I can't. That's the spirit of fear. God has given you the spirit of power. You're right. You maybe you can't, but God can, and he's working in you. So give it a go. He's given you the power, the spirit of power. Second, God has given us a spirit of love. This is that agape love, that self-sacrificial, others-minded, God-motivated love. One man said, the love we have from God is constant. It does not share the ebb and flow or the unpredictability of those other loves. It is a self-denying grace that says to others, in effect, I will give myself away on your behalf. Romans 5, 5 tells us hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You can love others because God loves you. As we stated earlier, when you come to realize God's love for you, it naturally flows into love for others. Show me a person who does not love others. And I'll show you a person who doesn't understand God's love for them. Show me a person who's upset at life and angry at others. And I'll show you a person who doesn't truly know who God is. Either way, they've never actually experienced it in salvation or they've taken it for granted. God's spirit pours love for others into our heart. This love then motivates us to serve faithfully. We are naturally selfish people. So I said, the number one reason I hear when seeking to find people to serve in the church is that they don't have time. They just don't have time. Let me be blunt. That evidences a love for self. We do have time. We would just rather spend that time on something else. Spend it on ourselves. God's desire for you is to pour yourself out in love for others. Even as God poured himself out in love for you. God has given us a spirit of love. Third and finally, God has given us a spirit of self Control. This is an interesting word, self-control. Some translations translate it as a sound mind. It means self-discipline, the, the ability to keep oneself in hand. But it means even more than that. It's the discipline of the mind, which is prudent and thoughtful. It's not rash. It, re, it refers to considering every aspect of a situation and seeking God's will in it. That's why some translations use that translation of a sound mind. The believer is to thoughtfully use their gifts and abilities for God. We're to seek God's desires for our service and work in them. We're not to go off haphazardly, but to carefully consider the ramifications of what we are doing and how we are doing it. 
Sometimes people claim, I've got the spirit of power and of love, and they just wreak havoc in their wake with good intentions. We are to moderate it all by self-control, thoughtfulness. We are to think about how and why we are doing what we are doing, that it might be most effective for the glory of God. God desires that each of us fan into flame the gifts that God has given us. At salvation, each Christian receives grace gifts bestowed on him uniquely to equip him to serve God in a specific area or areas of life and ministry to which you've been called. You might say, I don't have any gifts. Well, 1 Peter is for you, 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You have a gift or gifts from God. There is no excuse for failure to serve God's people. The Holy Spirit in you demonstrates that for God's spirit. Uh, to demonstrates that for God's spirit in conjunction with your spirit is not one of fear. It's one of power and love and self-control. It's no longer one of laziness and selfishness, but one of sacrificial giving. How are you serving the church? How have you allowed the last year to lull you into a position of observer? No more. It's time for all of us to step up and re-engage. It's time for us to return to faithful service in the church. We are called to Christ-likeness. We are called to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in this text, we see two important steps to that goal. We must be people of sincere faith. It's time to stop playing Christian. It's time to stop being Christian in name only. It's time to stop separating our God stuff from the rest of life stuff. It's time to begin to live it out in every aspect of our lives. We must be sincere, unhypocritical Christians. Exuding Christ through every pore. We must demonstrate sincere love for others and seek to be a blessing to others. Second, we must fan into flame the gift that God has given us. You have abilities granted to you by God. It's time to start using them in the church. Perhaps you might say, well, I don't know what my gift is. I don't I don't know. Well, let's get you plugged into an area and see if that's your gift. And if not, then we know. And we can try another area. Plug you in somewhere else. But we'll discover it. But I can guarantee you that sitting at home, that's not your gift. Sitting in the pew is not a spiritual gift from God. Serving is. Being a consumer and not a provider is not your gift. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control.
Now is the time to step up. Now is the time to return to sincere faith through service to God's kingdom. Now is the time to re-engage. So what? Two simple things. One, make your faith real. Don't be content to be a Sunday Christian. Don't be content to be a Christian in a name only. Act like it in every area of your life. Two, use your spiritual gifts to serve the church. Don't be content simply to show up every Sunday morning and sit. Seek ways you can serve others in the church. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't have to be amazing. It may simply be taking someone to dinner. It may be simply making them banana bread. It might be working on their house with them. It might be coming and serving in a ministry in the church, serving our children, serving our adults. Whatever it is, God has some way for you to serve others and this church. You need to engage and do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your spirit that you have not left us without instruction or even without the power to obey that instruction. Lord, help us to believe what you have said to us today, that we can serve you, that we can have the ability to do what's right, that if we uh, pursue that passionate relationship with you, that you will infuse in us the power and the love and the discernment to serve you rightly. Lord, help us to act on this. Lord, we know that you have called us to change this world and to impact our community. We know that you have called us to spread the gospel. We also know that we are inadequate. So, Lord, help us to believe that your power will work in us and to act on it. Thank you for those in our ministry who are so faithful, who have exhausted themselves for the cause of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would bless them and guard them, that you might use them continually for your honor and glory. Lord, I pray that the rest of us would not be content to simply cheer them on, but to join them in the trenches to do the hard work of ministry. We ask that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.